Well, I was uh, truly grateful to Alice that she didn't pick Armored Christian Soldiers for our hymn. I I loved that hymn as a child in Pathfinders, but as I got older and learned more, particularly about Constantine uh, having a seeing a vision of the cross and saying, conquer by the sign, and then the line uh, with the cross of Jesus going on before uh, so I was, I was grateful that she didn't do that. Uh, we've been dealing with the great controversy uh, this quarter, and I'm going to start with not just one problem, but several problems. The great controversy teaching is not found in the Old Testament. Like the doctrine of the Trinity, can it really be biblical? This is a synthesis of a statement that Fred Veltman made in 1979, circa 1979. Uh, I was no longer a student at PUC. I had transferred to Andrews. Actually, I was home recuperating from Mono. Uh, and I, and a, my former roommate here at PUC sent me the sheet of paper of, of statements by Fred. And this caused me, shall I say, the beginning of a search for an answer, because the question Fred was really raising is, is the great controversy biblical? I almost put that in the title of the bulletin, but I decided to quote it. (laughs) In Lutheran and Reformed teaching, Satan is God's right arm to punish sinners. He's a member of Yahweh's court, even busier. He is not the holy dualistic entity portrayed by Seventh-day Adventists. Most Old Testament scholars see Satan as a later figure brought into Judaism after the exile through Persian influence. And if you go to Elaine Pagels, you know that she does not believe it's Jewish at all, it's purely Christian. And, and I believe in her, in her final thesis, it is used by Christians against Jews uh, to Satanize them. Moral dualism, the category under which the great controversy teaching falls as we see it as Adventists, has been charged with responsibility for much of the violence exercised by fundamentalist extremists in the 20th and 21st centuries, particularly among Christians. There's another aspect of that. Monotheism has also been charged with the same. And these two actually have an uneasy cohabitation in that Old Testament scholars maintain that the Old Testament is not dualistic because of monotheism. If you have a sovereign, single God, you don't have an equally opposing power called Satan. So, what is moral dualism? The standard definition is belief in two opposing or opposite principles or entities of good and evil that are equally powerful or opposing. An example of this would be the Taoist yin and yang. William Blake believed in a similar view of darkness and light. I have to dissent from yin and yang being equated with moral dualism. Okay, dualism. Yeah. I don't want to okay. take out take out the word moral. Yeah. moral. Please, that's not a proper understanding. Yeah, yeah, okay. Thank you for that correction. According to most Old Testament scholars, dualism in this sense seems to be completely at odds with monotheistic religions. So Judaism posits God as the source of both good and evil. Islam does not teach it because Allah is supreme, always victorious over Satan, Iblis and the jinn. And in Christianity, uh, Christ has triumphed over Satan. Therefore, only polytheistic religions, for the most part, have true dualism. Now, my own backstory is that though my major for my doctoral program was ancient Near Eastern and biblical law, my second minor was theodicy in the context of ancient cosmology. And my original goal for my dissertation was to demonstrate a correlation between the Satan and the Leviathan in the book of Job. Of course, my former advisors, uh, professor at Lutheran Theological Seminary and the Graduate Theological Union, Anna Lutheran, was very angry over my dissertation proposal, maintaining, along with many Old Testament scholars, that Satan in the book of Job was Yahweh's vizier on earth. And to him, there was no dualism in the Hebrew Bible. 
And you understand, Fred trained at the same institution. So. Um, <laughs> there's probably co-influence there. Thanks to my current advisor and co-chair of my dissertation committee, Professor Jeffrey Kwan intervened and told me to go and prove it. That was the basis on which I started my dissertation. <laughs> Here's what I found. The definition of moral dualism as opposition between two powers or principles equally powerful or viable did not work so well in the ancient Near Eastern context. In the first place, the constructs and symbols change. If polytheism more naturally leads to moral dualism than monotheism, then we should find moral dualism as classically defined in ancient Near Eastern polytheistic religions, such as Canaanite or West Semitic, Sumero-Babylonian, or Egyptian religions, since all were polytheistic. Instead, I found the situation rather different. In fact, this statement could also apply to the ancient Near East. Dualism is unbiblical, since scripture does not teach that the universe consists of opposites, nor does it affirm that God and Satan are equal and opposing forces. That was true, not just in the Bible, if, if that is the case, but it's also true in the ancient movies. Basically, the primary God always conquers the evil opposing force, always. You never have a, a, a cosmic myth, a, maybe I should put a combat myth is what we call it. You never have a combat myth where the, the primary god loses or comes into equal power, except in one case, and that's in Baal with Moat. Baal takes on Moat, which is death, and he is killed by Moat. But he seems to come back to life, and scholars debate whether he's resurrected or, or what happens. Uh, there's, there's several different views on that. Or reincarnated. <laughs> uh, there doesn't seem to be that concept in the ancient Near East. So that's the case in the ancient Near East. There is not these equally opposing powers. And now that, <clears throat> now that Greg has taken out Taoism, which, uh, by the way, <laughs> which, by the way, was, was contended that, that was given as an example of what I read uh, in a book. Once, once that's gone, there may be no example in ancient Near East of two equally opposing forces. What about Zoroastrian? Yeah. That's yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Mazda always conquers. Uh, Mazda always conquers. Mm -hmm. Uh, where do we get the Manichaeans? That may be your only example left, and, and they probably developed it into two equally opposing It's a fairly forces. critical example since it's so, so critical to, to the story of Augustine, who's then sitting there at the foundation of so much Christian theology. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Augustine's big liberation from Manichaeanism is discovered, to discover that while evil is not a thing in itself that's only destruction, which implies there must be something to be destroyed. And good is that which creates and creates the yeah. stuff that can be yeah. destroyed. You know, this, thank you for pointing me to that because this is this is just the beginning, the preamble to what I hope will be a, eventually a hopeful study of this. And and I have looked at Zoroastrianism and my sense of things is that a Mazda always does is always on top of evil, even if evil still exists. Just because evil still exists and hasn't been conquered doesn't mean you have absolute dualism. Well, logically, it would not make sense anyway, because yeah. if evil is equally powerful, then we don't really know the difference between good and evil, do we? It's just two. Yeah, you, yeah. two opposing forces. So probably it's more accurate instead of moral dualism in the ancient Near East and in the Bi or in early parts of the Bible is to speak of cosmological dualism or cosmic dualism. The sea, sea monsters, storms, death, darkness, and desert regions where no one lived comprise the elements of ancient Near Eastern cosmological dualism. There's a reason for that weight that I had at the beginning slide. These mythic metaphors did not serve as immoral forces as opposed to moral ones. 
but rather as forces of chaos, such as gods turned destructive toward their offspring, or the deity of death taking on the god who presumed to reign supreme, or armies coming up against the city and plundering it or waging war. In fact, my contention is that all of these images, uh, which we are, in the Bible are mythopoeic, but in ancient Near Eastern understanding are mythic, all of these mythic images are really uh, metaphors for war. And that's where they come from. Uh, if you study Mesopotamia, for example. Combat myths only rarely assign moral judgment upon the chaos monsters or other chaos figures. When Enuma Elish, uh, Tablet 2, uh, Line 3, says, In the future, Tiamat did more evil than Apsu, following Foster. It is unclear whether the evil is really a moral issue or not, since the Akkadian word lumunu means to treat badly or defame. Indeed, in the general usage of, of it, the word, it seems that evil was whatever hurt or offended someone or made them angry, despite CAD's definition of lemnu as morally bad, evil, without a single example from Akkadian literature that really supports it. Uh, keep in mind, uh, the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary is a dictionary that includes all, all citations of words that they have to date of the dictionary. So that doesn't mean they're all inclusive, but that everything they have up to that point. In contrast to legal documents where justice is extolled within the combat myths, it seems that dualism is more power-based than one of moral rectitude versus evil. So the qualities of ancient Near Eastern chaos, uh, still assuming that we are dealing with immoral, I call it immoral because evil, how can evil be moral? <laughs> evil. Chaos is evil because it hurts us or makes us angry. It is not evil for us to retaliate or use violence back at them. We may deserve chaos because gods have fated it or because we've offended a deity. If we win the war or suit, we are morally just. Order allows us to function, to move freely and to live in peace. So it's, I know I'm in a gray area here. You could call this moral dualism. But I think of it more as, as uh, cosmic dualism, as chaos versus order kinds of dualism, not so much the kind of moral connotations we give to dualism today. So here are the combat myths. Uh, in Egypt, you have Horus versus Seth. Now, this is where you have just, this is again a gray area where you could possibly contend that there's two equally opposing forces because this still remains at large to cause problems occasionally, but it's only occasionally. Horus is still supreme because he is, uh, the pharaoh is the living Horus. Mesopotamian Anzu myth and Enuma Elish, uh, this is where you have different kind of dualism where it is not, uh, not equally opposing forces. Uh, Ninurta, the god of kingship, completely defeats and destroys Anzu, the chaos monster who stole the tablets of destiny. Marduk conquers Tiamat and creates the world from a carcass. You can't get a better done deal than that. <laughs> In Ugarit, Baal versus Yom and Mot versus Baal uh, with, with Yom, Yom is completely conquered, as far as I can tell from the text. But Moat, as I mentioned earlier, uh, seems to remain a potential enemy. Which makes sense, because in the life of the ancient Near Eastern people, people keep dying, right? Death has not been conquered. In Israel, it depends on how you tra tra uh, translate certain passages in the book of Job, as to whether God conquers the Leviathan or whether the Leviathan remains large. So here's a partial conclusion. Moral dualism in the ancient Near East was never a contest between equals, whether equals in power or authority or moral value. Always with the exception of possibly Baal and Moat and Horus and Seth and the combat myths, the more powerful, <coughs> and I question, or righteous, conquered and slew the chaos monster. They did not only slew them, but often decimated them. Even with Horus and Baal, they remained conquerors to some degree over Seth and Moat. So when most scholars read the book of Job, they conclude that Yahweh is boasting in the divine speeches about his having conquered Leviathan, but that, as we will see, is not necessarily the case. 
Uh, and and uh, I think you all know that I did my dissertation on the Book of Job, so <laughs> you can't ask me to talk about this topic without <laughs> being subjective. To my I discovered in the Book of Job that the Book of Job is ambiguous. There are whole, very significant lines that are being translated in opposite ways without doing any damage to the Hebrew whatsoever. Now, let me explain why that is. Hebrew is a very small language, 10,000 words, 2,000 of which is, uh, are, I should say, are loan words from other languages. So that leaves 8,000 Hebrew words. And of those 8,000, about 2,000 more are what we call Habax legomena. They're used only one time in the Hebrew Bible. So they're essentially without meaning. <clears throat> Because if they're used only once, you have to go by only that context to know what it means. Or you have to appeal to other cognate languages, which may or may not help be helpful. So you have a working vocabulary in Hebrew of about 6,000 words. That's a very small vocabulary. And if that's... I'm interrupting you. You're talking about biblical. I'm talking about biblical Hebrew. Yeah, it's the only kind we know of ancient times. Modern Hebrew is a conglomeration of languages. <laughs> as well as built on Hebrew. So, 6,000 words, what happened? What, why didn't they come up with new words for new ideas? Were they that limited in their ideas? No. They added ideas to already existing words. They, they used words in, in such a fluid way that you can come up with these different meanings for one word. And the writer of Job, I'm convinced, exploited that. For his own purpose. And so consequently, uh, the question can be raised, did Job bless or curse God? Because where it says, the Satan says to Yahweh, he will bless you to your face. Uh, the word is actually, I should actually say he will curse you to your face. The word is actually bless. And everybody translates it curse. Where, where Job he says, uh, shall we receive only good from the hand of the Lord and not also evil? Uh, there's no question in the Hebrew. We put the question in there because we assume it has to mean that. But in actuality, you could read it as a declarative sentence, and, say, and Job says, we shall receive good from the hand of the Lord and not evil. It says the opposite. Uh, does Job repent, or does he protest to the end? And translate it more than one way. So with, with all of these, it's not surprising that when I came to um, the divine speeches, there's a whole lengthy passage that can be translated more than one way. It actually has three options. This is a traditional way. This is a, let me explain what chapter 41 is so that you understand this. Uh, 41 is God's take on the Leviathan. He's describing the Leviathan. And in the middle comes this out of nowhere statement about God. If you translate it traditionally. Behold, the hope of man is disappointed. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. Who then is he that can stand before me? <coughs> Who then has given it to me that I should repay him? Whoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. In that passage, God is saying, I'm fiercer than Leviathan. End of topic. The problem is he goes on to describe Leviathan at great length as an awesome, incredible, frightening creature uh, who's still ruling over the sons of pride. doesn't make sense. Appears possible the option two. Look, his hopes are proven false. Who was not even his countenance cast down? I would not be loath to stir him up. Who is he that he should take his position before me? Who is he that he should take one, get one over on me and that I shouldn't have to make it good? I will not be muted by his casting of spells or clings to prowess or battle formations. That last two lines is very different than all translators translate. And I have to admit, I was influenced by the fact that I had discovered that this whole passage is a take on Numa Elish. If you want my evidence, go read my dissertation. <laughs> Here's the one that's the opposite. Look, one's hopes are proven false. Even a god, the word El, 
is in the text. Even a god is cast down when he sees him. I would not be so despicable as to stir him up. Who is he who can advance before him? Who shall approach him? Then let me reward him. Notice I've changed me to him. I have a reason for that. Let him, that is Leviathan, be mine in exchange for all the heavens. And the last few lines. So the reason I favor this third option, you can do the second one too, but I, I favor the third option, is the entire poem makes more sense if we view it as entirely about Leviathan and not about God. In Northwest Semitic, the first person pronoun may also appear as a third person pronoun, confusion perhaps between a yod and a wal. And I'm sorry about having those little dots I couldn't find in, in my computer. I couldn't find a strict yod in a wall. So um, I apologize for that. You won't know the difference except the farm back here. <laughs> Thus, in older Hebrew, and, and I and a few others uh, contend that the poetry of Job is quite old. Reading him instead of me is legitimate. The poem ends with Leviathan still at large, acting as king over all the sons of pride, a term that in the Hebrew Bible refers to the wicked. So I maintain that the book of Job portrays Leviathan as still current and opposing entity against God. He is not a conquered foe. Yahweh does not conquer him. It does not say anywhere in the text that Yahweh conquers him. That's been assumed and read into the text by multitudes of scholars. The actual theodicy of Job, and this is, this is my conclusion, uh, is played out in a conflict between Job and his three friends. Each of the three friends defend a form of the standard doctrine of reward and punishment, sometimes referred to as retributive justice. Job, on the other hand, maintains that divine justice... I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I was probably too tired of grading papers. And too influenced by poor <laughs> But anyway, or at least should be distributive that God punishes the wicked and the righteous alike, and that he, Job, manifests such justice in, the be in, in being... Wow, I was really out of it. Eyes to the blind and feet to the lame... And by wrestling the prey, wresting the prey from the predator, from the predator his prey. In the divine speech, as Yahweh defeats his justice as cosmological, as creator of all, Yahweh loves his good and bad creation alike, provides for both prey and predator. This is why evil exists in the world. And over the proud, the Leviathan personification of evil reigns yet unconquered. This is what I where I think the Hebrew Bible is headed. So current thoughts about moral dualism in the book of Job, the ancient Near East, by its very nature, dualism belongs to the arena of war, conquest, and seizure. Yet such a dualism hardly bore a moral cast. Moral matters in Mesopotamia were assigned to legal, not mythic, the legal, not mythic sphere. Only in theodicy did the two entities, morality and dualism, meet. And even here, for the Babylonians, the dualistic aspects were only faintly represented. The book of Job does something unique. And, and by the way, I, I took the ancient Near Eastern theodicies that were written before the book of Job, and I put them in chronological order, and I could see actually development from one to another, with Job coming out as the most developed, actually moving beyond. Taking, uh, it actually has a lot of affinities to the Babylonian theodicy, uh, because the Babylon theodicy has a sufferer and his friend in dialogue, and they're in controversy, uh, much like you have Job and his three friends. <clears throat> so the book of Job does something unique. It assigns morality to both spheres, legal and cosmological, and brings them both together in a debate between legal and cosmological justice. Job is therefore the only ancient Near Eastern piece of literature that deals with moral dualism, if you define that dualism a little more loosely. Now we come to Hasatan. It's found two times in the Hebrew Bible, in Job 1, 6 to 12, and 2, 1 to 6, and in Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. Zechariah, we know, is post-exilic. What is Job? I contended in my dissertation that Job has two layers. One layer is, is early, possibly Egyptian, in caste, 
probably pre-exilic. Uh, the second layer would be exilic, time about Neo-Babylonian Empire, and that's been uh, that's been actually corroborated with a parallel study by a friend of mine who did her dissertation on the Book of Job at the same time I did mine, and she quoted my dissertation and I quoted her dissertation. <laughs> dissertation, but she uh, contended after reading hundreds and hundreds of uh, Neo-Babylonian legal texts, that is courtroom cases, where she tried to dis- decide what a trial looked like, what was the procedure of a trial, ancient Near Eastern trial. These were Neo-Babylonian <laughs> court cases. She decided that the Book of Job is a Neo-Babylonian court case. And uh, she has published her dissertation. I have yet to publish it. So in both passages, Hasatan is a title meaning adversary, accuser, and Job the figure is ambiguous. It is unclear whether he is for or against Yahweh. That's my conclusion. And not only are there lines that are ambiguous in Job, the characters are ambiguous. In Zechariah, Yahweh summarily rebukes Hasatan as though he had no right to accuse Joshua the high priest. So we have a shift from Job to Zechariah uh, where in Job, Hasatan is, is not clear where he stands, whereas in Zechariah, God just summarily rebukes him like it's already a done deal that he's an enemy. Now the term Satan without the article appears in 1 Chronicles 12, 1, where Satan tempts David to number Israel. Some see this as the latest form of Hasatan's development, where his title has now become a name. So keep in mind, Satan means adversary or accuser, right? So it's the Satan, the accuser, the adversary. So you, that's why you have the article. It's not a name. So the contention is that in First Chronicles, which again is post-exilic, <clears throat> the, the title has become a name. However, I don't think that is a, a correct study because in the New Testament, Satan is most frequently Hosatanas with the article. Masculine. It's masculine. Hosatanas. Right, masculine. So, in fact, I counted it last night, and this is a very rough estimate because I didn't double check my work, but um, it's 30, 35 times and 28 times that it's Hosatana, or some form of that, like two Satana or whatever. <clears throat> On the other hand, lest you take that too seriously, Theos occurs in the New Testament as Hotheos. So, I, you know, it, it isn't clear, uh, but is it... The question still has to be raised, is God seen in the New Testament as a name or as a title? That's the question. Um, on the other hand, you could read it as early, an adversary tempted David to number Israel and still be in the veil of Hebrew. Note that this represents a theological shift from 2 Samuel 24.1 where Yahweh is said to tempt David to number Israel. So is it Yahweh tempting David to number Israel, or is it Satan tempting David to number Israel? Moral dualism here, I'm going to tickle your minds with some uh, out-of-the-box thinking here. Jacob Milgram, in his seminal commentary on Leviticus and Anchor Bible, suggests that moral dualism in the Hebrew Bible centers on humankind and the evil done by human beings. Humanity versus God versus, uh, represents Old Testament dualism. And in his seminar class one evening, he pointed out that there is one, only one of God's creation in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 that is not spoken of as good. Can you guess what it is? It's mankind, humankind. Well, the Apostle Paul will suggest that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, a designation for human beings, but with principalities and powers in the heavens. It seems that the Old Testament is more concerned with human evil. Now I'm going to take you through a hermeneutical development that I see happening in the Old Testament. In keeping with the ancient Near East 
mythopoeic imagery is often used by Hebrew writers to depict evil or the forces of chaos. The sea. Uh, God conquering the sea. And Leviathan. However, even in the Psalms in Isaiah, Isaiah 27.1, the Lord with his great and mighty sword will, con- will uh, slay the dragon, the Leviathan, uh, who is in the midst of the sea. However, even in the Psalms in Isaiah, these forces are not treated in moral terms. Only in Job does mythopoeic moral dualism take place. The kings of Babylon are no longer recognized by evangelical scholarship as having anything to do with Satan or a fallen being from heaven. Yet the fact that they are not mentioned by name, the kings are not mentioned by name, whereas other kings in both Isaiah and Ezekiel are, suggests a mythic function, something recognized at least by one scholar in a Brill published book that I have at home. Uh, he thinks there's an actual kind of a template prototype uh, in ancient Near East, particularly in Ugaritic literature, of a rebel falling from heaven. In Job and Zechariah, if Job and Zechariah represent later developments, while mythopoeic combat myth imagery are earlier, one can see beginning the beginning of a trajectory from mythopoeic power-based dualism to cosmic moral dualism. And that's the trajectory I see happening, is that, that ancient Near Eastern uh, dualism was pretty much power-based. It was a power struggle. And you have that in the Hebrew Bible, reflected in the mythopoeic language, in the Psalms, Isaiah. But as we move towards Job, uh, we head towards moral dualism. During the late Second Temple period, Various persona of evil developed, such as demons and evil angels, in apocryphal works such as Tobit, in the pseudepigraphal First Enoch, and in Qumran sectarian scrolls. They represented powerful evil entities. And they were, there was a moral cast to them. In the New Testament, demonology is not pronounced, in that demons don't usually have names, except possibly a single instance, yet demons are well accepted as to their existence. These are considered evil, but powerful. Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of the world and has fallen from heaven. Paul further, uh, furthers a sense of cosmic forces, and James speaks of demons as believing in God and trembling. The book of Revelation, and this is now where I, I tread softly. <laughs> Ross sitting there. Uh, the physical center of Revelation 4 to 22 is 1210 in the middle of the statement about a war in heaven. My father and I counted our Greek New Testaments. <coughs> kind of a crazy, bizarre thing to do, but it was really interesting where we ended up in the center. <clears throat> Throughout Revelation, Satan is hosatanas <clears throat> consistently, and that's not true of all other books in the New Testament. Here are brought together the more moralizing Satan with ancient mythopoeic imagery, dragon and snake, as well as later devil. And perhaps an allusion to Genesis 3, the dragon is given a new epithet, the deceiver of the whole world. It seems then that Revelation by conservative traditions is arguably the last book written, or arguably the last book written of the New Testament canon, draws together on almost all ancient dualistic images and, and centralizes them into one entity. Of course, I can't resist putting this in, the beast derives from behemoth and the dragon from Le- Leviathan and Job. But is this dragon a form of moral dualism? Revelation 4 to 22.5 centers on two symbolistic sides, lamb versus beast, mark versus seal, bride versus harlot, New Jerusalem versus Babylon. At the heart of these two sides, Michael and the dragon, Michael's name means who is like God. The answer, the lamb. There is a counterpart that in 13.4b, they worshiped the beast and said, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? I really believe that Michael embodies that question and that the question is a moral question in the book of Revelation. In the context of Revelation, the two sides represent land-like colonies versus bestial oppression and force. 
Therefore, while one side is moral, the other is about power. Here's the question. If, if we're going to use current methods of exegesis, and we use them on all of our teachings, would any of them stand? And keeping in mind that the earliest Adventist hermeneutic was not the one we currently use. Uh, the hermeneutic was more comparing scripture with scripture. Anybody want to tackle those questions? I didn't mean to silence you all. <laughs> Ross. So, this is a good question. Uh, when we look at that question, and that is, what does biblical mean? Yeah. <laughs> because there's a lot of things in the Bible that we would never call. That's right. Believe. So when people say, oh, it's biblical, but I want to ask, what do you mean it's in the Bible? Or it's a teaching? It's a, a teaching supported, I think the way we use it is a teaching supported by the Bible. So if it's a teaching, then it has to be, it seems to be, it has to be, there must be some kind of uh, clear purpose behind it being set forth as a teaching. Uh, as opposed to something derived from various strands here and there. That's when you get into... But that's that's when, when we encounter some problems. Because, because the early, I think early Adventists did not view the Bible as a systematic theology. So, at its root then, it seemed to me problematic to make a simple statement that the Bible is God's word. Well, what do you mean by that? It's more complicated. Well, if if you mean like it's a it's very it's, human document, if, if desperately trying to have something truthful that we can extract from, and and that that, that term extract is what we really have done, isn't it? You really, you really have to work on it to understand what God is trying to say. One, yeah. I, mean, I suspect there are several answers to this question, I'm sure, but one scripture that I'm thinking of is John 14, where it says the prince of this world half of the half of the enemy. So Jesus is making it clear that there is a separation between his goals and Satan's goals. Right? Right. That's that's one of the texts that we would use. Shall we? To your question, is the great controversy teaching biblical? You can look at that from a Christian perspective or a Jewish perspective. And I would like to introduce the Jewish perspective, which I think is very interesting, which is the snake in the Garden of Eden and the, the opposing force in the Job story is not Satan. It's the prosecuting lawyer. We both have within us the defense lawyer and a prosecuting lawyer. Romans talk about it as the carnal self and the spiritual self. And these two forces are constantly either stretching us towards our external selves, our ego, or our internal trying to better our, our internal self, our inner self, the true person that we are. I just think it's very interesting that when we talk about it, the teaching isn't biblical. Yes, we have the intuitive forces constantly that is within us. And us to do evil. So, so you would you would go with Milgram, which of course is a Jewish scholar. Milgram believed that the the real moral, the real uh, evil entity in the Hebrew Bible is us. Is us? Yes. yes. So you would go with that. Yeah, Nancy. You covered a lot of ground here. I <laughs> know. I know. You began trying to actually understand what I guess I think is a, your argument. I didn't have an argument. That's what is bothering you. <laughs> I decided you guys would have but to you give me the argument. Have a framework and said, if this is true, and this is true, and this is true, then, huh? right? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you began by saying that the Great Controversy, the Adventist version of the Great Controversy, is based on moral dualism. I thought you said that. Yeah. And you're, you're taking that as obvious and given. 
I'm taking that probably by the one who developed it the most, and that's Ellen White. But your definition of moral dualism is that, okay, in the great controversy, yeah, Satan hasn't been de defeated yet. Yeah. Well, we believe, we over, believe you will. The universe is reigning with God is love. It, it, yeah. So uh, why are you calling the great controversy? I, 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 I think at one point I said more loosely. I'm emphasis on the moral more than the dualism. It's the dualism that's the issue. It's not the moral aspect. Between God and Satan, he didn't say there was dualism because Satan is not an equal force with God, so that's not what he said. No, I've never said that. But what I have suggested is that Satan is not conquered. But he is at the end of the great right. controversy. Right. Yeah, just that we're but that's the end of the great controversy. <laughs> you know. I'm confused here. Uh, you know, when we learned 40 years ago, now it seems we're out learning everything. That, anyway, you see, that was 40 years ago. Uh, I was taught that Satan was defeated at the cross. Now, you say he's not defeated yet? Well, he's, know, he's, some he's, other pastors say, well, you know, if they read the book from the beginning to at the end, you know, we already know that Satan is a defeated foe. Now, He's, if I'm wrong, please correct me or enlighten me. In, in, Adventist, in, in, in Alan White's view, he was defeated at the cross in terms of the onlooking universe, but not in terms of us. Amen. He's defeated at the cross in terms of the universe, okay. the loyal universe, but not in terms of us on this planet. Yes. Everybody has to make that decision. Right. At the end of your life, did Satan conquer or did God? He still has the right to harass us and do whatever he wants. Exactly. Within limits. And we still have that choice to make. Right. That's right. Ron? You know, this is way over my head. The idea of Bible and experience, we tie those together. The great controversy, I think, each of us in our own hearts can kind of see that there is a desire for allegiance to one or two, light or darkness, easy way to describe it. And I know it's very real in my life, I sense that it isn't everyone else's life. Uh, I read even Buddhist teachings that's brought out in almost any teaching. So I can believe a lot in the Bible, but this Bible, because it's true, it can speak to me in very real ways and maybe speak to somebody else in a very real way, getting a very different um, understanding so what would you say to Fred? He's not here to defend himself. Yeah. Repeat Fred's. Fred's statement was that the you cannot defend the old you cannot defend the great controversy from the Old Testament, and neither can you defend the Trinity from the Bible. Mm -hmm. Don't we need the New Testament to understand the Old Testament? Well, that's when it comes to things moral. That's increasingly where Adventists, some Adventists, thinking Adventists, are finding themselves. Is that Jesus is the moral standard, not Phineas? You understand what I mean by Phineas? Big spear. Big spear. Yeah. I'll tell you where, where I've come out on this. To me, to me, I have to go back to hermeneutics. And I have to say that are we going to treat the Bible as merely a human book or are we going to treat it as sacred text? And if we treat it as sacred text, then is the comparative method that the Adventist pioneers use by which they established the doctrines of our church, which, by the way, they didn't number some 28. <laughs> uh, but by which they established the doctrines of the church, is that totally invalid? And what I found interesting is that on a, on a major Facebook group that talked about 
uh, well, it's called I Support the Ordination of Women. <laughs> Just to tell you what their agenda is. Uh, during the years leading up to this last summer, they came to the conclusion that maybe comparative method of scripture, you know, comparing scripture with scripture was not a bad idea for helping us to understand some of Paul's statements. Um, because Paul is our biggest problem. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back to hermeneutics and I'm saying, is, is just because we now see that that methodology is antiquated, is it invalid for all time and all places? That's, that's one question I have. But, but another question, and, and what I've, oh, maybe I should catch Greg before I move on. Uh, I'm not at all sure that's a good idea, but um, <laughs> since you, you know, interrupted yourself. Um, invalid by what standard? Uh, by the fact that we have progressed to better Pro ways of interpreting as scripture. I to say from C.S. Lewis, uh, always is judged to be progress by some kind of uh, existing moral standard. Otherwise, it's just movement. Uh, or just change. Um, and I guess knowing what that absolute standard is is our problem because none of us none of us are very good at coming up with the absolute standard. All we need to do is consult with our fellow class members and we find that we're not that good. Uh, there's always conflict about what that absolute standard is. Um, so I, I, I guess where I'm headed is that I look to some of the other traditions amongst which uh, Adventism has arisen and, and derived from. And I think we have to say that the, the, the old rule of the Bible and the Bible only is the sole rule of, of faith and practice is so problematic that we have to qualify it. Um, and the Anglicans qualified by saying, well, Scripture, yes, but also reason, reason in Scripture and tradition, and then from the Anglicans come the Methodists, which from whence comes all white, by the way. Uh, it's reason, scripture, tradition, and experience, as I've heard invoked here. Um, somehow or another, out of that mix, and, and if, it, if, it, if the ancient, not ancient, pardon me, the 1800s Adventist fathers and mothers had a comparative method, that's part of our tradition and should not be discarded lightly. It may need to be reinterpreted. But somewhere in that mix, we believe that the Spirit is still leading us forward and suggesting where progress ought to point. What, you, just, you just made a nice bridge statement to what I was going to say next. I'm <laughs> that <surprised>. is, <laughs> And that is that where I'm coming from, and where I actually led you at one point, but I realized it kind of got lost in the maze and kind of flew over the heads, most of you, is that we look for a trajectory of development in Scripture. And the trajectory is from power-based power dualism to moral dualism. It, defining dualism rather loosely. Okay? Defining dualism rather loosely. And, and I really do need to study the Manichaeism doctors because that's the only thing so far that I've heard that really is dualistic. And if, that, if all the rest of the world is not there, <laughs> then I have to question, is our definition only for one group and not for the others? You know, that, but, but to me, there's a trajectory towards the moral caste and thus we're moving to a more and more moral entity. And woe to us as Adventists if we limit the great controversy to a power struggle. Amen. That's going backwards. If we come to uh, immoral issues with, with the side of right being... Uh, non-violence, non-injustice, uh, not, not all these things. And that evil ultimately self-destructs so that it doesn't end with one power against another power, but it implodes from within. 
If we end with that note, which I believe Ellen White does, then we have reached the pinnacle, it seems to me, of where we were headed with this. And therefore, we can say as Adventists, we have simply taken next logical steps toward this. I, I Real quickly, uh, and then we'll have to close. I did a study when I was in a graduate school at Loma Linda. It was my first paper for research methods class with Paul Landon. And Paul had a really major disagreement with my major professor, Graham Maxwell, over the Great Controversy. And I wanted to do my paper on the history of the Great Controversy model. So, which was kind of dangerous to pick up with Paul Landon because he was a historian. But uh, <laughs> I uh, chose to do it. And uh, he gave me the books I was supposed to use and told me how to use them, which I wondered about his scholarship at that point. <laughs> but okay, I will use your books. And I read them, and, and what I discovered is, yes, Ellen White got a lot of her understanding of the Great Controversy from poets. But, because the poets were the ones that preserved this view. Uh, actually, the, the Lutheran Calvinist tradition kind of got rid of that view. But that view uh, lived on in Ellen White. And her perception, where she differed from Milton and all the others that went before her, was that she gave this very moral cast. And to her, the great controversy was over the character and government of God. And it affected how God ran his universe, and it affected how uh, sin was dealt with, and it affected everything. Um, so that was, that's where I came from in that. And I really believe that this is that that particular way of looking at it is our greatest genius as a church. It's what we should be out front promoting rather than a power struggle between God and Satan. So that's where we'll have to close any this Gracious Father, we thank you that uh, we can get through the maze of opinions and ideas and come to understand uh, where you have been leading us. We pray that we will continue to let you lead us to higher and higher ground. In Jesus' name.